Chapters 21 and 22 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzi. Chapter 21 The Dublin Mystery. I always thought that the history of that forged will was about as interesting as any I had read, said the man in the corner that day. He had been silent for some time, and was meditatively sorting and looking through a packet of small photographs in his pocket-book. Polly guessed that some of these would presently be placed before her for inspection, and she had not long to wait. "'That is old Brooks,' he said, pointing to one of the photographs. "'Millionaire Brooks,' as he was called. And these are his two sons, Percival and Murray. It was a curious case, wasn't it? Personally, I don't wonder that the police were completely at sea.' If a member of that highly estimable force happened to be as clever as the clever author of that forged will, we should have very few undetected crimes in this country. That is why I always try to persuade you to give our poor ignorant police the benefit of your great insight and wisdom, said Polly with a smile. I know, he said blandly, you have been most kind in that way, but I am only an amateur. Crime interests me only when it resembles a clever game of chess with many intricate moves which all tend to one solution, the checkmating of the antagonist, the detective force of the country. Now confess that in the Dublin mystery the clever police there were absolutely checkmated. Absolutely. Just as the public was. There were actually two crimes committed in one city which have completely baffled detection. The murder of Patrick Wethered, the lawyer, and the forged will of Millionaire Brooks. There are not many millionaires in Ireland. No wonder old Brooks was a notability in his way, since his business, bacon-curing, I believe it is, is said to be worth over two million pounds of solid money. His younger son Mary was a refined, highly educated man, and was, moreover, the apple of his father's eye, as he was the spoilt darling of Dublin society. Good-looking, a splendid dancer, and a perfect rider, he was the acknowledged catch of the matrimonial market of Ireland, and many a very aristocratic house was opened hospitably to the favourite son of the millionaire. Of course, Percival Brooks, the eldest son, would inherit the bulk of the old man's property, and also probably the larger share in the business. He, too, was good-looking, more so than his brother. He, too, rode, danced, and talked well, but it was many years ago that mamas with marriageable daughters had given up all hopes of Percival Brooks as a probable son-in-law. That young man's infatuation for Maisie Fortescue a lady of undoubted charm, but very doubtful antecedents, who had astonished the London and Dublin music-halls with her extravagant dances, was too well known and too old established to encourage any hopes in other quarters. Whether Percival Brooks would ever marry Maisie Fortescue was thought to be very doubtful. Old Brooks had the full disposal of all his wealth, and it would have fared ill with Percival if he introduced an undesirable wife into the magnificent Fitzwilliam Place establishment. That is how matters stood continued the man in the corner, when Dublin society one morning learnt, with deep regret and dismay, that old Brooks had died very suddenly at his residence, after only a few hours' illness. At first it was generally understood that he had had an apoplectic stroke. Anyway, he had been at business hale and hearty as ever the day before his death, which occurred late on the evening of February 1st. It was the morning papers of February 2nd which told the sad news to their readers, and it was those self-same papers which on that eventful morning contained another even more startling piece of news that proved the prelude to a series of sensations such as tranquil, placid Dublin had not experienced for many years. 
This was that on that very afternoon which saw the death of Dublin's greatest millionaire, Mr. Patrick Weathered, his solicitor, was murdered in Phoenix Park at five o'clock in the afternoon, while actually walking to his own house from his visit to his client in Fitzwilliam Place. Patrick Weathered was as well known as the proverbial town pump. His mysterious and tragic death filled all Dublin with dismay. The lawyer, who was a man of sixty years of age, had been struck on the back of the head by a heavy stick, garroted, and subsequently robbed, for neither money, watch, nor pocket-book were found upon his person. Whilst the police soon gathered from Patrick Weathered's household that he had left home at two o'clock that afternoon, carrying both watch and pocket-book, and undoubtedly money as well. An inquest was held, and a verdict of willful murder was found against some person or persons unknown. But Dublin had not exhausted its stock of sensations yet. Millionaire Brooks had been buried with due pomp and magnificence, and his will had been proved, his business and personality being estimated at two million five hundred thousand pounds by Percival Gordon Brooks, his eldest son and sole executor. The younger son, Murray, who had devoted the best years of his life to being a friend and companion to his father, while Percival ran after ballet dancers and music hall stars, Murray, who had avowedly been the apple of his father's eye in consequence, was left with a miserly pittance of three hundred pounds a year, and no share whatever in the gigantic business of Brooks and Sons, bacon curers of Dublin. Something had evidently happened within the precincts of the Brooks town mansion, which the public and Dublin society tried in vain to fathom. Elderly mamas and blushing debutantes were already thinking of the best means whereby next season they might more easily show the cold shoulder to young Murray Brooks, who had so suddenly become a hopeless detrimental in the marriage market, when all these sensations terminated in one gigantic, overwhelming bit of scandal, which for the next three months furnished food for gossip in every drawing-room in Dublin. Mr. Murray Brooks, namely, had entered a claim for probate of a will, made by his father in 1891, declaring that the later will, made the very day of his father's death, and proved by his brother as sole executor, was null and void, that will being a forgery. CHAPTER Twenty Two: FORGERY The facts that transpired in connection with this extraordinary case were sufficiently mysterious to puzzle everybody. As I told you before, all Mr. Brooks' friends never quite grasped the idea that the old man should so completely have cut off his favorite son with the proverbial shilling. You see, Percival had always been a thorn in the old man's flesh. Horse-racing, gambling, theatres, and music-halls were, in the old pork-butcher's eyes, so many deadly sins which his son committed every day of his life, and all the Fitzwilliam Place household could testify to the many and bitter quarrels which had arisen between father and son over the latter's gambling or racing debts. Many people asserted that Brooks would sooner have left his money to charitable institutions than seen it squandered upon the brightest stars that adorned the music-hall stage. The case came up for hearing early in the autumn. In the meanwhile, Percival Brooks had given up his race-course associates, settled down in the Fitzwilliam Place mansion, and conducted his father's business, without a manager, but with all the energy and forethought which he had previously devoted to more unworthy causes. Murray had elected not to stay on in the old house. No doubt associations were of too painful and recent a nature. He was boarding with the family of a Mr. Wilson Hibbert, who was the late Patrick Weatherid's, the murdered lawyer's, partner. They were quiet, homely people who lived in a very poky little house in Kilkenny Street, and poor Murray must, in spite of his grief, have felt very bitterly for the change from his luxurious quarters in his father's mansion to his present tiny room and homely meals. Percival Brooks, who was now drawing an income of over a hundred thousand a year, 
was very severely criticized for adhering so strictly to the letter of his father's will, and only paying his brother that paltry three hundred pounds a year, which was very literally but the crumbs off his own magnificent dinner-table. The issue of that contested will-case was therefore awaited with eager interest. In the meanwhile the police, who at first seemed fairly loquacious on the subject of the murder of Mr. Patrick Weathered, suddenly became strangely reticent, and by their very reticence aroused a certain amount of uneasiness in the public mind, until one day the Irish Times published the following extraordinary enigmatic paragraph. We hear on authority, which cannot be questioned, that certain extraordinary developments are expected in connection with the brutal murder of our distinguished townsman, Mr. Weathered. The police, in fact, are vainly trying to keep it secret that they hold a clue which is as important as it is sensational, and that they only await the impending issue of a well-known litigation in the probate court to effect an arrest. The Dublin public flocked to the court to hear the arguments in the great will case. I myself journeyed down to Dublin. As soon as I succeeded in fighting my way to the densely crowded court, I took stock of the various actors in the drama, which I as a spectator was prepared to enjoy. There were Percival Brooks and Murray, his brother, the two litigants, both good-looking and well-dressed, and both striving, by keeping up a running conversation with their lawyer, to appear unconcerned and confident of the issue. With Percival Brooks was Henry Orenmore, the eminent Irish K.C., whilst Walter Hibbert, a rising young barrister, the son of Wilson Hibbert, appeared for Murray. The will of which the latter claimed probate was one dated 1891, and had been made by Mr. Brooks during a severe illness which threatened to end his days. This will had been deposited in the hands of Messrs. Weathered and Hibbert, solicitors to the deceased, and by it Mr. Brooks left his personality equally divided between his two sons, but had left his business entirely to his youngest son, with a charge of two thousand pounds a year upon it, payable to Percival. You see that Murray Brooks, therefore, had a very deep interest in that second will being found null and void. Old Mr. Hibbert had very ably instructed his son, and Walter Hibbert's opening speech was exceedingly clever. He would show, he said, on behalf of his client, that the will dated February 1st, 1908, could never have been made by the late Mr. Brooks, as it was absolutely contrary to his avowed intentions, and that, if the late Mr. Brooks did on the day in question make any fresh will at all, it certainly was not the one proved by Mr. Percival Brooks, for that was absolutely a forgery from beginning to end. Mr. Walter Hibbert proposed to call several witnesses in support of both these points. On the other hand, Mr. Henry Orenmore, K.C., very ably and courteously replied, that he too had several witnesses to prove that Mr. Brooks certainly did make a will on the day in question, and that, whatever his intentions may have been in the past, he must have modified them on the day of his death, for the will proved by Mr. Percival Brooks was found after his death under his pillow, duly signed and witnessed, and in every way legal. Then the battle began in sober earnest. There were a great many witnesses to be called on both sides, their evidence being of more or less importance, chiefly less but the interest centred round the prosaic figure of John O'Neill, the butler at Fitzwilliam Place, who had been in Mr. Brooks' family for thirty years. "'I was clearing away my breakfast things,' said John, when I heard the master's voice in the study close by. Oh, my, he was that angry! I could hear the words disgrace, and villain, and liar, and ballet dancer, and one or two other ugly words as applied to some female lady, which I would not like to repeat. At first I did not take much notice, as I was quite used to hearing my poor dear master having words with Mr. Percival. So I went downstairs carrying my breakfast things, but I had just started cleaning my silver when the study bell goes ringing violently, 
and I hear Mr. Percival's voice shouting in the hall, "'John, quick, send for Dr. Mulligan at once. Your master is not well. Send one of the men, and you come up and help me to get Mr. Brooks to bed.' "'I sent one of the grooms for the doctor,' continued John, who seemed still affected by the recollection of his poor master, to whom he had evidently been very much attached. "'And I went up to see Mr. Brooks. I found him lying on the study floor, his head supported in Mr. Percival's arms. "'My father has fallen in a faint,' said the young master. "'Help me to get him up to his room before Dr. Mulligan comes.' Mr. Percival looked very white and upset, which was only natural, and when we had got my poor master to bed— I asked if I should not go and break the news to Mr. Murray, who had gone to business an hour ago. However, before Mr. Percival had time to give me an order, the doctor came. I thought I had seen death plainly writ in my master's face, and when I showed the doctor out an hour later, and he told me that he would be back directly, I knew that the end was near. Mr. Brooks rang for me a minute or two later. He told me to send at once for Mr. Weathered, or else for Mr. Hibbard, if Mr. Weathered could not come. "'I haven't many hours to live, John,' he says to me. "'My heart is broke. The doctor says my heart is broke. A man shouldn't marry and have children, John, for they will sooner or later break his heart.' I was so upset I couldn't speak, but I sent round at once for Mr. Weathered, who came himself just about three o'clock that afternoon. After he had been with my master about an hour, I was called in, and Mr. Weathered said to me, that Mr. Brooks wished me and one other of us servants to witness that he had signed a paper, which was on a table by his bedside. I called Pat Mooney, the head footman, and before us both Mr. Brooks put his name at the bottom of that paper. Then Mr. Weathered gave me the pen, and told me to write my name as a witness, and that Pat Mooney was to do the same. After that we were both told that we could go. The old butler went on to explain that he was present in his late master's room on the following day, when the undertakers, who had come to lay the dead man out, found a paper underneath his pillow. John O'Neill, who recognized the paper as the one to which he had appended his signature the day before, took it to Mr. Percival and gave it into his hands. In answer to Mr. Walter Hibbert, John asserted positively that he took the paper from the undertaker's hand and went straight with it to Mr. Percival's room. "'He was alone,' said John. "'I gave him the paper. He just glanced at it, and I thought he looked rather astonished.' but he said nothing, and I at once left the room. "'When you say that you recognized the paper as the one which you had seen your master sign the day before, how did you actually recognize that it was the same paper?' asked Mr. Hibbert, amidst breathless interest on the part of the spectators. I narrowly observed the witness's face. "'It looked exactly the same paper to me, sir,' replied John, somewhat vaguely. "'Did you look at the contents, then?' "'No, sir, certainly not. Had you done so the day before?' "'No, sir, only at my master's signature.' "'Then you only thought by the outside look of the paper that it was the same?' "'It looked the same thing, sir,' persisted John obstinately. "'You see,' continued the man in the corner, leaning eagerly forward across the narrow marble table, "'the contention of Murray Brooks' adviser was that Mr. Brooks, having made a will and hidden it, for some reason or other under his pillow, that will had fallen through the means related by John O'Neill, into the hands of Mr. Percival Brooks, who had destroyed it and substituted a forged one in its place, which adjudged the whole of Mr. Brooks' millions to himself. It was a terrible and very daring accusation directed against a gentleman who, in spite of his many wild oats sowed in early youth, was a prominent and important figure in Irish high life. All those present were aghast at what they heard, and the whispered comments I could hear around me showed that public opinion, at least, 
did not uphold Mr. Murray Brooks' daring accusation against his brother. But John O'Neill had not finished his evidence, and Mr. Walter Hibbert had a bit of sensation still up his sleeve. He had, namely, produced a paper, the will proved by Mr. Percival Brooks, and had asked John O'Neill if once again he recognized the paper. "'Certainly, sir,' said John, unhesitatingly. "'That is the one the undertaker found under my poor dead master's pillow, and which I took to Mr. Percival's room immediately.' Then the paper was unfolded and placed before the witness. "'Now, Mr. O'Neill, will you tell me if that is your signature?' John looked at it for a moment. Then he said, "'Excuse me, sir,' and produced a pair of spectacles which he carefully adjusted before he again examined the paper. Then he thoughtfully shook his head. "'It don't much look like my writing, sir,' he said at last. "'That is to say,' he added, by way of elucidating the matter, it does look like my writing, but then I don't think it is. There was at that moment a look in Mr. Percival Brooks' face, continued the man in the corner quietly, which then and there gave me the whole history of that quarrel, that illness of Mr. Brooks, of the will, I, and of the murder of Patrick Weathered, too. All I wondered at was how every one of those learned counsel on both sides did not get the clue just the same as I did, but went on arguing, speechifying, cross-examining for nearly a week, until they arrived at the one conclusion which was inevitable from the very first, namely, that the will was a forgery, a gross, clumsy, idiotic forgery, since both John O'Neill and Pat Mooney, the two witnesses, absolutely repudiated the signatures as their own. The only successful bit of calligraphy the forger had done was the signature of old Mr. Brooks. It was a very curious fact, and one which undoubtedly aided the forger in accomplishing his work quickly, that Mr. Weathered the lawyer, having no doubt realized that Mr. Brooks had not many moments in life to spare, had not drawn up the usual engrossed, magnificent document dear to the lawyer heart, but had used for his client's will one of those regular printed forms which can be purchased at any stationer's. Mr. Percival Brooks, of course, flatly denied the serious allegation brought against him. He admitted that the butler had brought him the document the morning after his father's death, and that he, certainly, on glancing at it, had been very much astonished to see that that document was his father's will. Against that he declared that its contents did not astonish him in the slightest degree, that he himself knew of the testator's intentions, that he certainly thought his father had entrusted the will to the care of Mr. Weathered, who did all his business for him. "'I only very cursorily glanced at the signature,' he concluded, speaking in a perfectly calm, clear voice. "'You must understand that the thought of forgery was very far from my mind.' and that my father's signature is exceedingly well imitated, if indeed it is not his own, which I am not at all prepared to believe. As for the two witnesses' signatures, I don't think I had ever seen them before. I took the document to Messrs. Barkston and Maud, who had often done business for me before, and they assured me that the will was in perfect form and order. Asked why he had not entrusted the will to his father's solicitors, he replied, for the very simple reason that exactly half an hour before the will was placed in my hands, I had read that Mr. Patrick Weathered had been murdered the night before. Mr. Hibbert, the junior partner, was not personally known to me. After that, for form's sake, a good deal of expert evidence was heard on the subject of the dead man's signature, but that was quite unanimous, and merely went to corroborate what had already been established beyond a doubt, namely, that the will dated February 1, 1908, was a forgery, and probate of the will dated 1891 was therefore granted to Mr. Murray Brooks, the sole executor mentioned therein. End of chapters 21 and 22